I was just back there thinking about last week and how we ended the sermon with the head, heart, and hands application, and the hands application was to be praying Scripture, and maybe think in conjunction with while we preach through the Scripture, it guides and directs my thought process. Instead of pulling things here or there, potentially out of context, we go through Scripture, and it guides the conversation. It guides the talk. It guides the message. Well, praying Scripture does a similar thing, and that was the application for last week, and I hope some of you maybe uh, for the first time tried that. Some of you who do that, maybe you're, you're reminded to start doing that again, because it's all about being in God's Word, letting God's Word speak, and so we need that desperately. These are difficult times, right? You look around all of the things that seem to be pushing against church, God, Scripture, and there's so much that the uh, enemy, Satan, is, is just using. And it's easy to think that our times that we're living in are the worst times ever. I think it's normal to feel that way because it's the only thing we know. I was reading the account of the late 1930s in a book the other day, and it was talking about how that America was in a place kind of very similar today where just everybody was full of anxiety about what was going on in the world. At that time, there was... Um, the, Germany was aggressively pursuing dominance, and so America was under the threat of war. You also had, at the same time going on, you had people who just still remember just a few decades back the First World War. We can't imagine how that, how, how that like, damaged people, not just physically people who lost their lives, but just the pressure of war and the Great Depression had just ended. There was a growing shortage of food in the nation. And so all these things were just lining up. Uh, the great New England storm, uh, hurricane of 1938 had just happened. And 700 people had died. And 63,000 people had been displaced from their homes. So this was a, a tough time. And then come October 30th, 1938. Any students of history know what happened that night? Anybody think they might know? I won't call on you. You think you might know? Well, December 30th, 1938, the night before Halloween, when America was just this tinderbox just waiting for a spark, the spark was just the most absurd thing for us now. It was a radio program by a guy named Orson Welles. Now you know, you're putting this together. And he did this fictional account of America being attacked by Martians, and it literally called, caused mass hysteria throughout the United States. People were literally thought that we were under attack. They thought this was a true thing that they were hearing on the radio. And I think this is a perfect metaphor for the angle that we're going to hit this sermon today because the truth is we are at a war. And we're at war. It's a spiritual battle, but it's very similar that it's a battle against the lies and the deceit of Satan. Satan uses lies and deceit to promise us things that he can't deliver on and to use these to deceive people into believing one thing is true when Jesus says something the complete opposite is true. In fact, in John chapter 8, we're going to see Jesus call Satan the father of lies. And so in our text today, John 6, we're going to be in verses 22 through 35, I want us to recognize the lies that we're tempted to believe from this passage because just like the people of Jesus' time, we're tempted by the same lies of Satan. He really hasn't changed the strategy a whole lot. He's still trying to get us to believe something 
that pulls us away from Jesus and makes us focus on something that is not going to deliver. And so 30, verse 35 is kind of the climax of this. Mitch quoted this that when Jesus brings it all together and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So he points it all back to himself. So let's pray and let's look at this passage as everything leads to that verse right there. Father God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for scripture that guides us and gives us life, gives us hope, gives us direction, gives us an understanding of why we're here and what we're about, God. And we know that we're so easily uh, misguided in our thinking. We're so easily, uh, we give in to the temptations of Satan to think things and believe things that we know are not true according to your word, God. And I pray that you will allow us in these battles that we're waging in our minds, God, that the weapon will be the word of God and the weapon will be knowing you and having an intimate relationship with Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So as we step back into John chapter 6, let me catch you up to speed. If you've been out or just it's been a long week, you may have forgotten. So the first week in John chapter 6, Jesus fed what we say the 5,000. It was literally probably a lot more than 5,000 because there were women and children that weren't counted in the 5,000. So it was more like probably fifteen or 20,000. And the crowd responds by saying, this guy, Jesus, he must be the prophet. And the, the prophet was prophesied by Moses long before, back in Deuteronomy, that another would come who would be the prophet to bring deliverance. And so all these signs were pointing to Jesus as the new Moses, the liberator who would come and deliver him from their enemy, not the Egyptians now, but the Romans. And literally at the end of the narrative there in the early part of John chapter 6, they were ready to make him king, take him by force and make him king. And how does Jesus respond? Interestingly enough, he takes his disciples, his 12, and he ushers them off on into the boats and have them get out of there while he disperses the crowd. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I'm sure that disciples thought, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for, right? Power, authority. Man, that's what I signed up for. That's why I gave up my job and my livelihood so I could see the kingdom come and this happen. And so the disciples they're probably getting into this. They're buying into this. The crowds are ready to hoist them up on their shoulders, you know. And Jesus sends them off in the boats and gets them out. And next, Jesus goes and he responds by going off by himself to pray. And then last week, we saw that the disciples, as they were on the boat on the Sea of Galilee, a big storm had come up and Jesus had not arrived yet. And we talked about how that oftentimes we wonder where Jesus is at and why Jesus has allowed this situation. And Jesus is going to bring, literally, his disciples to their knees as he comes walking on the water to them in the boat. He calms the storm, gets them to their location. And we noted how Matthew, in his gospel, said for the first time that the disciples worshipped Jesus. They knelt down and they worshipped Jesus. Yes, you are the Son of God, Matthew 14.33 says. So now we move on to the next day. John skips ahead to the next day in verse 22. It says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the Sea of Galilee saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus, he hadn't entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place 
where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And so the people knew the disciples had only used the one boat that was available to them and that Jesus had not left with his disciples. And so they were interested in seeing Jesus again, but they weren't quite sure where to find him. And so when these other boats arrived there in verse 23, they went to Capernaum to the other side of the Sea of Galilee looking for Jesus, and they were surprised to find Jesus with his disciples there. Once again, look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So apparently, Jesus' miracle of walking on water was only for his disciples at this point. Because Jesus doesn't elaborate. He doesn't tell them how he got to this point, how he arrived in Capernaum. Instead, he just moves on and he confronts them in verse 26 and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You ate the, your fill of the loaves. By no means am I a big lover of art. I honestly, when I go to museums or uh, places similar to that, I'm really looking at my watch how quickly we can get out of there. But a few years back, I went to the Met in New York City. Have you, has anybody ever been to the Met in New York City? Look, for a guy who does not like museums, I was pretty much mesmerized by it. I mean, this place was humongous, and there was so much there, so many dates and time periods, and there was so much stuff, amazing stuff to, to look at. But think about this for a second. If you had never been to the Met, and the only opportunity you got to go was to go and to do a scavenger hunt, a time scavenger hunt where you had to go in, rush through, take down a bunch of facts, see a bunch of things and get the facts recorded, and then you had to get out in, in this competition. What would happen? You would see things that were amazing, that were brilliant, that were so, uh, you know, so much history behind them, so much artistic ability that's displayed on the canvas. But you would not have time to stand and reflect. You would be so busy getting the facts, getting the stuff. And you see, that's what the crowd is doing, and that's what a lot of people do today with Jesus. They want to know the facts about Jesus. They know a lot of head knowledge about Jesus, but they never stand and gaze at his beauty. They never look and are mesmerized, overcome like, like the disciples were, with worship for Jesus. And so the crowd is very much taken in by the fact that Jesus did these things and could fill their stomach, but they missed out on the fact that Jesus was doing something so much more. He was revealing himself worthy to be worshipped. And I think this is the first thing I want us to see that Satan does to us. Satan wants us to focus on our physical appetites and ignore Jesus, who alone can fill our true need, our spiritual hunger. So the people were consumed with getting fed and seeing miracles that they failed to open their hearts to the person of Jesus. And we know this to be true in our day. If you want to gather a big crowd, you say free food, people show up. You put free spiritual worship, free worship, you get a handful of people. Why? Because people love that their appetites are being satisfied or they think they're being satisfied. And people, including all of us here, have real physical needs, 
because God gave us these appetites. However, when we let our appetites get out of balance and we allow Satan to convince us that we need to take matters into our own hands and seek after our fulfillment, our needs, we disorganize our priorities. Our priorities are disordered and we begin to run after things that will not bring us fulfillment and satisfaction. In fact, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That's exactly what happened to Eve. When Satan came, he said, oh yeah, God said this. Don't believe that. Believe this instead. Here's the truth. And Satan, the father of lies, told her that she could have her appetites fulfilled in ways other than what God had said. And that's exactly the same thing that we do. We chase after things that we know will not bring fulfillment. I've used this story before several years ago. Some of you may remember it, but absolutely true story. A guy in our youth ministry back in Dallas, his name was Nathan. And Nathan was a, a guy who really, he did love God. He, he had a heart for God, there's no question. But like a lot of teenagers and a lot of people in general, right, we're having trouble getting our prior, uh, priorities organized correctly. And we're so easily swayed by our passions. And he told us this story so we could pray over him because he kind of reached the depths of his depravity, like rock bottom. He said it was a Friday or Saturday night, and he was at home. It was late. His mom was in bed. His siblings were in bed. And he just had this overwhelming urge to like go to the red light district of Dallas, which is this area called Harry Hines Boulevard. And he said that he literally, like he felt like just... He was being pulled, being swayed, you know, just he gave in and he just got in his car and he drove down to the, in the middle of the night to this awful area of Dallas. And he got there and he got out of his car and he started to walk through the area. And he began to think, what am I doing here? Why am I here? And he said, then he noticed this dude was following him. And we know why that's about. Kids in the room, I won't say that. This guy started following him. And he literally started running, and the guy started running, following behind him as well. And he ran into this lobby of this hotel, and he began to pray. He said, God, if you can get me out of this, I promise you, I will change. I cannot believe I'm at this point. So he finally, the guy goes away, and he goes back to his car, gets in his car, turns the ignition. The car won't start. He's sitting there. It's like 2 o'clock in the morning. Who's he going to call? What's he going to say? And he's, all these thoughts are running, and he just said he, he just put his head on the steering wheel, and he just prayed, God, please get me out of this situation. And he turned, and it cranked up, and he drove home, and he said, I'm stopping this. He said, the sins of the father, his father who had abandoned their family for an affair, and his history, and he said, it's done. I'm done chasing after this appetite that is bring this destruction upon me and my family. And the thing is, it's crazy. No many, how many stories we hear about sin, doing this to people, and not being, bringing fulfillment, being overwhelmed by these strong appetites. It never fails that people continue to run back to these. Christians continue to run back to these things that we know will not bring satisfaction, will not bring hope and fulfillment. But we run to them again and again and again. And, and somebody said this to me several years back. He was struggling with alcoholism, and he said, you know, 
you just got to get to the point where you're so broken that you know you need help, that you're, you've got to be done with it. And that's really this idea of just confession, and you're honest before God, and you say, God, I'm tired of chasing after the fulfillment of my appetites. You see, we all feel that pressure coming in on us at times. And the more that we take our eyes off Christ, and the more that we think we know enough here in our head to get us through the day or through the week, as long as we think it's about our knowledge and not our relationship with Jesus, then the more that we can become overwhelmed by this. And it may not be a sin that leads you to the red light district in the middle of the night. Maybe it is. But maybe it's something that seems far more benign, just bitterness. It's eating away at your soul like a cancer. But it's eating and eating and eating, and it's destroying you. And you have to come to the point where you truly understand that only Jesus can give you the satisfaction you need. You see the crowd, they were looking for something to satisfy, but truthfully, the, the, the bread that Jesus provided would not bring lasting satisfaction. It would only bring temporary satisfaction. And that's what we see Satan does to us. We pursue the temporary rather than spend our, our energies on the eternal. We spend all this energy on the things that we know are just short-term in their satisfaction. Look at verse 27. Jesus makes it clear. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will give to you. So he says, don't pursue the things that are just going to be in and done. And then you're going to have to go again and again and again after these things to find the fulfillment. And this is typically this cycle of just this destructive cycle where you run after things that promise. You find short-term fulfillment. And then all of a sudden you realize what an idiot you've been. And you come to God with some confession, some sorrow, some remorse. But then it's right back the same cycle again and again and again. And Jesus says you're pursuing the temporary. You're working. You're literally working. It's exhausting. You're working for food that perishes. But the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man gives you, that's what you need to be working for. Look, Jesus here isn't suggesting that we earn eternal life. He says work for the food that endures for eternal life. He's not saying that we need to work for salvation. But let's be clear. Grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And that's an important statement. Grace is opposed to earning something from God, but it's sure not opposed to effort. There's nothing wrong with serious effort for our sanctification as long as it's rooted in Christ and in His Word, in the means of grace, the fountains of grace that He's flowing over us. I read this quote from a guy named J.C. Riley. He said this, How are we to labor? There is but one answer. We must labor in all the use of all the appropriate means. We must read our Bibles like people digging for hidden treasure. We must wrestle earnestly in prayer like people contending with a deadly enemy for our very lives. We must take our whole heart to the house of God and worship and hear like those who listen to the reading of a benefactor's will. 
we must fight daily against sin, the world and the devil, like those who fight for liberty and must conquer or be slaves. And I love that quote, and it's in the app if you're following along. The fact that we just want a little bit of effort, a little bit of Bible, a little bit of prayer, a little bit of sanctification, a little bit of fighting the devil, a little bit of holiness. And, and, and Jesus says, you need to work for the food that endures for eternal life. Don't be scared of working toward our holiness as long as it's rooted in Christ. That's why we call fight clubs fight clubs, because there's fighting that is involved in the, in the spiritual life. We need one another. We need people, as my friend Jeff Oldham likes to say, in our foxhole with us in the war. Because it is a war that's going on. But the war is a war in our minds. It's a war of lies and versus the truth of God. And then Jesus brings the focus again with the people again and again back to himself. In verse 27, the second half of 27, he says, For on him, and he's speaking in the third person, talking about himself, For in him God the Father has set his seal. And this is about Jesus' authority. He's basically saying, I'm the only one that's qualified to give you this life that, need, that you need, this eternal life. It's another way of saying nobody comes to the Father except through me, which Jesus says in John 10. And so next they ask a question. It seems like a good question. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? It's a good question. What can we do? What are the works of God so we can be busy at work doing these things? And look what Jesus answers. Look how he responds. This is great. Verse 29, Jesus answers them, This is the work of God that you, what's the next word? Believe. Believe in him whom he has sent. So to paraphrase that, the work God wants you to do is to believe in me, the one God the Father has sent to you. Here's your work. Believe in me. Trust in me. Put your hope in me. And so again, the Bible is clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not of works. And that's what this is getting at. Jesus said it's about our belief. And here's the biggest lie of Satan, which sadly, people who should know better continue to default to. And many of you have relatives and friends who are in churches who are being misled and deceived by Satan in this very way. Satan is working to deceive people in believing that they had to earn God's favor, that Jesus isn't enough. That salvation is by works in some way, shape, or form. And Jesus says, you want to know what work it is? Here's the work. The work is to believe in me. And I think one of the most basic desires of human beings is to be in control. And to be in control of our destiny. To think that some way that we've got this managed under control. And the, all false religions, including many that go under the label of Christianity, teach a works approach to salvation. They may teach that we're saved by faith, but not by faith alone, but by faith plus works. Faith plus works. And I don't mean this to be offensive to anybody, although, you know, it probably will be. But. Many of you have come out of Catholicism, or you know people who are in the Catholic Church, and sadly, 
many of the people who are in the Catholic Church, especially in this area, don't adhere to the official catechism of the church. I have it. You're welcome to borrow it and read it. It's clear. It says you've got to add to your salvation. And it's sad, and, and, and this morning as I sit in my office at 7 a.m., the parking lot of the Catholic Church filled up with cars at 7 a.m. for people going to Mass. And I'm not here bashing Catholicism. Like I said, I know many people, including some relatives of mine who are in the Catholic Church who I know are believers. They're trusting in Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's a tough, tricky area for sure. But we have to be clear. We don't add to what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's why we are here and we say we're Protestants. Because of that very reason, we understand that it's all about Jesus. All about Jesus. And so salvation by works appeals to our pride and our desire to be in control. And it's natural that when man creates a religion, it's going to involve some types of works. But our job is to keep our eyes upon Jesus, to seek His grace. And out of true faith in Jesus, then our good works will begin to happen. You see, it's not faith, it's not true faith if it doesn't work. James makes that clear. You don't have faith if you don't have the fruit attached to it. There should be some progression of sanctification, of growing to be like Christ in your life. So this is not, I've got my belief and now I don't have to do anything, right? No, the nature of true faith in Jesus means then that works will happen, good fruit happen, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience. Those things progressively grow in our life. And I like to point this out often because this can blow up a church if we don't keep that in our, this in our mind all the time. That a healthy church has people that are here spiritually and it has people who are way up here spiritually. And that's a good thing because all of us are growing and all of us are going through times where we may go through periods of time where we're not growing like we should, but the trajectory of all of our lives should be toward Jesus and toward the cross. And so, yes, we go through periods of our time where we stray and we lose focus and we take our eyes off Jesus. But if you look back over the last five years, let's say, there should be a trajectory of growth. And I, I think for many of you, you can see it, and you know it's there. You've fallen more in love with His Word. You're, you're getting up, and you're opening His Word, and you're reading, and you're praying. When I say, I'm giving away these books on the Gospel of John, quickly, 20 of these books were gone because people, you're, you're interested in knowing and taking down the truth and learning from the truth and applying it to your life. Many of you prayed, and, and you really prayed Scripture this week. Those are signs that your faith is real. We're going to talk more about that next week when Jesus calls out a bunch of people who said they were disciples. And then verse 30, so he said to them, then, then what sign do you do that we, that, I'm sorry, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Okay, hello, where are we at in the text here? Jesus had just done what? He just fed 
15 or 20,000 people with a little kid's lunch. And they're saying, okay, then what are you going to do here, Jesus? What's happening? Like, what are you going to do to make us believe even more? We need proof. Now, look, watch where this is going here. You remember I said a couple weeks ago, all this is like the Passover is near, and there's so much the theme of Moses and deliverance in this passage. Well, we see that again here in verse 31. He said, uh, it says, our fathers, the people were saying this, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they say, Moses gave us manna from heaven for 40 years. Sure, you just did something that was pretty amazing, but we need something bigger. We need to see something more. And I think what's interesting to note here, and this is a lot of times what people who are false prophets or pro- false teachers or even people who are just misguided, they do, is they will take some scripture and they will twist it. You see, these people used biblical reasoning to challenge Jesus. But don't just think because you connect a verse here or there to what you want to do in life or what your appetite needs to be, desi- uh, to be fulfilled. And so you grab a hold of something here or there and make it all right with you know, what you're doing. It's not right. And, and Jesus is pointing this out. He's going to show them, hey, you're taking and you're twisting Scripture. And that's exactly what Satan wants them to do and what us to do. He wants us to believe that God's provision and guidance is not good enough. And that in the past, what God has done, let's downplay that. It's not that significant because it's kind of like, what have you done lately for me, God? And so they were questioning what God had done, what Jesus had done, his miracle that he'd just done, he'd just performed, but they're just moving past that because it's not enough for them. What have you done for me lately is their attitude. And really what they're getting at is the fact that, you know, they're pointing to Moses and they're saying, Moses did this and he brought down this manna from heaven. Jesus, you didn't do that. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I said to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So two things he's doing there. He's saying, look, Moses didn't do that. He says God did that. And it's interesting that he uses this word here, and Jesus does this a lot. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, just stick with me here for a second, okay? A couple things first. You don't need to know the original languages to be an awesome Christian. You don't. To follow Jesus, you don't even have to go and research and study the original language. You don't, you don't have to have that. So I want to be clear because we stand up here, Roy, myself, and we, we say, okay, in the original language, uh, you know, we're studying this stuff out. We're seeing this stuff, and there's times where it's kind of interesting, but don't feel like that you haven't reached this next spiritual plateau if you're not reading in the Hebrew and Greek, okay? Let me just be assure, sure you understand that. But it's kind of cool to see that the Greek word here truly which is a translation of the Aramaic Hebrew, it means to confirm. Now, that in itself is not an interesting fact, but here's what's interesting. In Jewish writings, in Jewish times, nowhere in Jewish literature will you find anyone using this before their own statement. It's used to prove somebody else's statement, to confirm somebody else's statement. So if I want to confirm Jerry's statement, I'm saying, truly, truly, what Jerry said was accurate. What he said was true. But here Jesus takes this, and he utters it for his own words, for himself. And never before had that ever happened. 
And you see what Jesus is doing. He continually points to himself being God. He's self-authenticating his words. He's saying, I have the power, the authority to do this. And we're going to see that even more in a minute in what he does with this whole manna equation. But I think it's interesting, and I love what C.S. Lewis, and many of you have heard this, the whole Jesus, is he Lord, liar, or lunatic? The things that he said, the claims that he made, you've got to put him in one of those categories, all right? Nobody says that I'm God. Nobody says that, you know, I'm going to authenticate my own words, affirm my own words, unless they're either crazy, unless they're just a liar and they're just trying to just deceive people, as Satan does, or unless they're really, truly Lord. And so you have to deal with Jesus. And some of you who sit there and you hear, but nothing changes in your life because you're content with just putting Jesus in some category that he can't be put in. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? Are these words true? And if they are, then we build our lives upon Jesus. And all this is pointing to that. And so he says, truly, truly, he says, I'm confirming, I'm saying to you, I stand by, I'm the witness. It wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But then he turns it to the present tense. He says, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So he's saying even right now that the true bread is coming to you. Look at verse 32. Jesus said, then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And so at this very moment, he's saying the true bread is coming to them. So what's more impressive? All right, get this for a second, what he's saying. What's more impressive? Manna from heaven, which God did through Moses, or the fact that right in front of your face, God is standing. All right? God came from heaven in the person of Jesus. I'm standing here in front of you. So you say, give me more than, you know, the miracle that you did. You know, Moses got 40, day, 40 years of manna from heaven. That's pretty impressive. And Jesus says, hey, hold on a second. I'm God who came from heaven, and I'm standing here with you. The word became flesh as John started chapter 1. Jesus, he is God. Verse 33 for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread is Jesus. And I'm here to give you life, Jesus says. To give you hope. I'm giving you eternal life. But just like the woman at the well when Jesus said, I'm offering you something so you'll never be thirsty again. Remember what she thought? Man. That's a great offer. I'll never have to drag my bucket out here to this well and walk out here again. Kind of the same thing. The crowd's confused. They say, sir, give us this bread always. And we note that they're not getting it because, first of all, how do they refer to Jesus? Sir. Sir, not Lord. Sir. And, and I see in this just Satan's love for allowing us to people to buy into religion and a religion that's self-focused upon themselves and improving their lives versus true worship, which is about Jesus. 
And so we can do this ourselves. We can do what I call soft prosperity, where we take Jesus and turn him into, like, you're just supposed to be here for me. And you're supposed to help me and guide me and show me the best way to live my life. But Jesus doesn't operate on those terms. As God, he says, it's not about you. It's about me. It's about who I am. And here's my offer to you. Put your eyes on me. Set your heart on me. And so Satan loves to get people to just, yeah, there's a respect for Jesus. He's, yeah, he's, he's to be respected. He's sir, right? And Jesus says no. Verse 33, again, for the bread of God is he who came down from heaven and he gives life to the world. And then verse 34, give us this bread, and how does Jesus respond? Jesus doesn't offer them some temporary satisfaction. He offers them himself. Jesus said to them, and here it is, I am, the I am statement. I am the bread of life. They knew what he was saying. As he stood there in front of them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus, do something bigger to prove who you are. I am. Jesus, that was cool that you gave us food to eat. Give us more. I am. I am the bread of life. Take me. Feed on me. That's what he's going to say next week. And Satan is feeding all of us a bunch of lies all the time. It's lies that your personal prosperity is what it's all about. That's what he's feeding us. And in some way, I mean, that's a, that's a natural thing. Our appetites that God has given us. We, we, we have to live and we have to provide and we have to make a living for ourselves, right, and for our families. But disordered priorities, and Satan comes in and he gets us to shift that and change all those, where all of a sudden, instead of Jesus being up here and we're worshiping him, the things that he provides for our good and our enjoyment get flipped up to the top. And we begin to live for those things because Satan says, you got to do it on your own. you got to work hard for these things. Jesus, come on, you know, that's, that, that won't put bread on the table. Jesus won't give you what you need. And he constantly feeds us these lies. And Jesus says, feed on me. Yes, you're still going to get up and go to work. You're still going to have to learn how to be a better husband and a better, fa better father to your children. But you do it with Jesus being the focus. And Jesus is the focus then these things start to begin to take care of themselves. And the things that you are all about right now, earning money or achieving or conquering or doing great things, all of a sudden it gets flipped and Jesus says, I want you to live for my will in your job. I want you to keep your eyes on me as you go through your day. I need you to remember the scripture that you prayed in the morning so you can love like Jesus those people you come in contact with. 
And loving like Jesus doesn't mean I'm just going to always just say a nice word and a kind word. Sometimes loving like Jesus means to literally tell people the gospel or, or say the name of Jesus and point them to Jesus. Tell them why you have the hope that you have, as Scripture tells us. And so Jesus offers us himself. Satan offers us lies. This morning in my Bible reading, I'm on a reading plan with several of the people that are in this church, a few that are here today, and one of the scriptures was in Revelation where Jesus was talking to one of the churches of Laodicea, and he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And then he says this, he says, If you would hear my voice, So you get it? Jesus is not only knocking at your door, but he's saying, John, John, what's next? He said, if you open the door, I'll come in. And he says, I'll have fellowship with you. I'll sit down at the table with you. I'll have a meal with you. And the picture there is this this intimacy with Jesus. And you see, Satan wants us to believe that religion is what we need. Just going through the formalities of coming to church, doing the stuff. And Jesus is offering us himself. He's saying, dine with me. Be with me. Put your eyes upon me. Because there's this war for your heart that's going on. And Satan doesn't let up. And those lies are coming continually. And some of you know you're, you're, you're just being so controlled by your appetites to the point where there's no joy in your salvation all you are is just stuck in your sin. But others, we just want to snack a little bit on Jesus, but we're not really consuming him as our everything. And so that's our head and heart and hands very simply today. Jesus is who we need. I'm the bread of life. And the heart question for you today is, is Jesus your snack or is he your bread of life? Is he your snack or is he your bread of life? Honestly. What does your life say? What is the pattern of your life? What does just the flow of your life reveal about that? And here's my hands application, something to put into action this week. Talk to a spiritually mature person. Identify a spiritually mature person, somebody who you look to in this church, and you say, that person seems to be living the life, not perfectly, as we none of us are, the life of following Jesus And I need to be around that person. I need maybe just to talk to that person. I need to do what James says, confess my sins to one another and pray for one another so I can find healing. And some of you who are just being uh, in bondage, you're in bondage to your appetites. That's what you need. You need that person in your foxhole with you to help you and encourage you. And, And I dare you to step out and to find that person, identify that person and say, would you meet with me? And then when you meet, you confess To them, you confess to God. You repent of those sins. And then you start the actions and the steps necessary in order to begin to gain victory over those things in your life. Maybe it's some dark sin that leads you to Harry Hines Boulevard. Maybe for others, it's just an apathy to God's Word. And maybe it's somewhere in between. But you need men and women who will be with you and help you through this. Last week, when Richard came up, I pointed out through Scripture, through Timothy and Titus, how that church leaders are to be those who display a godly character, those who are pursuing after Christ, 
their, their, their lives are ordered in such a way that their families are a priority, they're leading their families well. And I said this last week as I went through those different things from 1 Timothy and Titus. I said the descriptions are basically identical for deacons and for elders, except for the, this area of teaching, that there should just be this drive, this hunger to teach for an elder, but the criteria is the same. I said it's not varsity and JV here. It's both before God. We're servants and we're pursuing Him. And so today as we do deacon ordination for our new deacons, I want to encourage you to look at maybe the families that are standing here as possibly somebody that you pull aside and say, hey, you know, I saw that you're a deacon, you're ordained. Do, can you, do you have time to meet with me? Can we get together and can you start sharing and building into my life? Because I need some discipleship. I need some encouragement. I need some help. I encourage you not just to always look to the pastors, but to look to our servants, our leaders. Elders and pastors are essentially the same thing in Scripture. And deacons, your servants, who have godly character. And when, when in Acts, when, when they went to find deacons, they said, find people who have godly character, who are above reproach. Those who stand out because of the pattern of their life displays a pursuit of holiness. And so as we do deacon ordination today, I want to remind you that this is not about perfect people standing up in front of you. These are people who are eager to serve this body and have expressed that have been identified by somebody else in the congregation, and they submitted to a process, and then today they stand here to confirm their ordination through some questions that the Book of Church Order, our bylaws, directs and, and gives. So I ask that our deacon candidates, and Drew and Katie Kelly were our, really our new deacon and wife today, and Drew is sick. He was able to be here, so we're going to do his on a different day. And then last year, I think with everything going on in the world and, and COVID and all that stuff, we missed ordination for some deacons last year. And so I'm going to ask you guys to come on up here uh, to the front. And, and if your family is available, have them come with you. And then I ask our elders and our other deacons just to come around these guys. And just put your hands on these guys.